Martin. I'm one of the editors at The Raspberrying Tree. I'm here today with two of my fellow editors, Andrea Williams and David James, and we are going to discuss the work of Don Maxwell Kutsi, the South African writer, was or, or formerly South African, he now lives in Australia. And to start us off, I'm going to give you a quick intro to Kutsi's work here from an essay that David wrote in 2017 called The Master of Cape Town. And so this is the, the opening paragraph, and it gives us a good sense of all the things that Kutsi has accomplished. So South African-born writer John Kutsi is one of the most decorated and celebrated living writers. He has won the Nobel Prize, the Jerusalem Prize, and was the first two-time winner of the Booker Prize. He has written 13 novels, three fictionalized autobiographies, and numerous essays and translations. Every one of his works from his first novel, Dusklands, in 1974, to his most recent novel, The School Days of Jesus, in 2016, is uniquely compelling, difficult, ambiguous, and, for me and many other readers, richly intellectually rewarding. David, to build on that, your essay, uh, can you give us a quick background sketch? Yeah, yeah, hi, thanks. So, J.M. Kutsi is, uh, yeah, he's South African, uh, but he has... A bit of a strange, particular biography, and also I think that's into his, his work. He was South African, so he you know, grew up under the apartheid regime, but he was also raised in an English-speaking family, and so it was a bit unusual. You know, he, he speaks Afrikaans, but his parents were kind of against the system, and he grew up also being against this uh, apartheid system. And anyone coming from that world, I think we could imagine, would, would be very political in some sense. Either you're supporting this uh, oppression, you know, or you're somehow fighting against it, or you passively don't like it. And a lot of those issues are what he explores in, in his, uh, his work, his literature, especially the first period of his, his life. So he, he became literary uh, in the mid-70s, and he's still working today. I think he's around 80, and uh, he actually moved from South Africa to Australia in the early 2000s and became an Australian citizen, and he still works in Adelaide writing, and an interesting thing about him is he's he's a very distinguished and, uh, you know, well-known writer and received a lot of awards, almost any literary award you can get. But he's also been a lifelong academic. He uh, got a PhD in literature, and he's a very scholarly writer of fiction. But he's also a translator and an essayist, and he he writes, you know, he writes a commentary on other literary works, and also in his own fiction. He's always, you know, working with great authors of the past and. He uses a lot of intertextuality. He's a very postmodern writer, for sure, I think. I mean, I, I'd say he's uh, almost a quintessential postmodern writer. I mean, he, he has a lot of the characteristics of what, what you find there. Yeah, he, he's had, I think, sort of two phases of his career, if we look at it. So I've read almost all his novels. I haven't read the most recent one. But I think... From his first novel in 1974, Dusk Lands, into Disgrace, which was 1999, I believe. Those are all very focused on South Africa, even if it's maybe in the form of metaphor. But after that, 
He actually physically moved and transferred citizenship to Australia, and his novels are much different since then. They're, they're much more philosophical and distant, and it's much more sort of self-commentary. On, I think he's trying to find his own place in the literary pantheon. It's kind of how I've seen it. He had a, a trilogy of uh, autobiographies he wrote, but which were not real autobiographies. They're very fictionalized, and he he did strange and interesting things with them, like using them, like making himself a character, always in the third person, and inventing a lot of details about his life which aren't true, and making himself look as bad as possible, almost in a way, in, in order to sort of, you know, negate the typical premise of an autobiography and but that's another thing. But I think he's he's been exploring different themes in the second phase of his career. I think some of the most interesting and probably the most well-regarded of his uh, his novels are some of the ones we'll focus on a bit more today. So there was Waiting for the Barbarians, his third novel, I believe, in 1980. And then the follow-up, which was The Life and Times of Michael Kay, which won the Booker Prize. And then Disgrace, which was 1999, and it also won the Booker Prize. And those three, I think, stand as some of the, the most interesting to talk about, but we could also find maybe some connections in his other works. I love your point about his autobiographical stuff in terms of showing himself in the worst light possible. And it is funny if you start reading some of that and and kind of look back at his earlier writings and how that's informing like that compulsion that he has. But one thing I wanted to add to the biography, I think which is really important to me when understanding him, is that he worked as an engineer for IBM, right, for about 10 years, or at least after college for a while. And before, so he's, he came to writing late. And he has this, you said, a quintessential postmodern experimental approach I think he went through a lot of different walks of life and understanding of our world, and that might apply or help us understand his, his work. I mean, I think we'll come back to that whole idea of making himself look as bad as possible, because I think that is actually really important to the plot and themes of his novels. We see yeah. it. I mean, we start with waiting. We see it in waiting, waiting for the present. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. True. The whole <laughs> well, book can be seen. I mean, the whole book scene is like this, because I just reread it this last week, and it, this, I mean, you have this kind of, it's a parable, right, we're set, not to get too far into the book, but you have essentially a character, the protagonist, the narrator, who comes from this quasi-aristocratic tradition, and the whole book is essentially him analyzing his actions, right, or his lack of actions, and just over and over again, moving us towards deeper and deeper into his own sense of guilt, complicity, and lack of, I feel I want to say a lack of an essential awareness about himself that he keeps on beating himself up over that no one else seems to care about. And I find that a funny way he sets that up. And and Tuxie's also aware of it too. I mean, a joke in that book, you have the the, the major antagonist he has describing him as, him as the last just man. He sees himself and he sees that kind of the the joke of him seeing himself that way. But I'm diving too far into the book. David, any, can you give us a quick background 
Yeah, Waiting for the Barbarians was his third novel from 1980, and it it's set in an unnamed empire. So yeah, you said it's a parable. So we don't like a lot of the characters don't have names. The main character is the magistrate, and there's the empire, and this magistrate is sort of the senior official of the empire at a northern outpost on the edge of this empire. With now and to the north, there's supposedly barbarians, right? And we could also mention the title comes from a poem by uh, Constantine Cavafy, who is a Greek poet of Alexandria. And it's sort of set during the Roman Empire where, you know, there's always the barbarians that everyone's afraid of invading and, you know, looting and pillaging and destroying, killing everybody. And so everybody's waiting for them to arrive. And in the end, they never do. Okay, spoiler alert. So the novel takes its name from that poem, and it's actually sort of, in a way, I think a novelization of the poem. But yeah, Kutsi goes deep into, it's, uh, there's a lot of things you could take from it. It's, uh, it seems like he's almost dissecting maybe the entire history of Western imperialism, colonialism, race relations, and indigenous relations with regard especially to you know the british empire also the dutch who settled south africa the americans but it seems like a lot of this you could find and he sort of the parable probably is that somehow we're all complicit in these crimes of his these historical crimes of you know whether you want to call it genocide exploitation at the very least you know, dehumanization of, of other peoples besides Western Europeans. And I think that's kind of what's at the heart of the novel. Maybe I skipped ahead. I, I didn't say much about the actual plot of the novel, but... Uh, I mean, that's, yeah. that's essentially the plot of the novel in some respects. Yeah, no, I, I don't think you skipped ahead at all. And I just one to supplement that, I mean, it's funny because you said, like, it could be read as a critique of South African British colonialism empires there, but it, it could even be broader than that. I mean, it's a critique like you were getting at in terms of of empires all time, all through history. All these, these you could be reading this through the the eyes of Rome or China, whatever you wanted to do, which can be very probably frustrating for some readers, especially given his South African background. And I think people read it that way. His refusal to to pin it down and his choice to do that is interesting. It's interesting, too, because the magistrate is, and, and so many of his characters are so interested in history, they're so obsessed with history, that the magistrate says, you know, that he wished that he could live outside history. And there's sort of a similar desire voiced in Michael Kay, too, that he lives in, like, this pocket outside time. So it's funny, because it, it seems like Kutsi has this desire, occasionally, like, in weak moments, for that easy out. Like, if only this weren't a problem, if only, you know... We were living outside of history and time and all of this stuff that has happened. But then, of course, his work always goes back to this has happened. And so, you know, we have to find a way to, to deal with it, which he does with, in, you know, these really sort of personal ways with these characters, which is kind of fascinating. No, it definitely is. And I like how you said, like, weak moments. Because I'm not so sure Coetzee, like, at time it is weak moments. You're right. Like, he is. But then at other times he sees it as, like, it's weak to give in to history, like to like let this be it. Right. And he 
yeah. that it's both. There's this doubleness that is incredibly frustrating if you're trying to pin it down. But it's also I can see like it seems to be driving since he's a, a thinker and a person that yeah he's looking to those pockets outside of history because and he sees that as weak at times, but he also sees like the the weakness of giving in to history and that being it and. That really appeals to me as a reader. I, I really, I, I always get really excited when he's he's able to pull that off somehow. And he's, he's a strange, he's a strange man if you keep on reading his stuff. But, right, um, and I think there's one of those threads that connects probably almost all of his works if if you tr- if you reach for it anyway. But even the character of the magistrate is, you no, know, he's a very intellectual educated figure and yeah he comes from an aristocratic background i think in the novel but it, it means he's, he's more of a cultured person he's the only one in that particular outpost and you know he's well read and knows uh, the classical languages and he's sort of a collector but he's also a representative of this uh, oppressive and violent empire and i think in in most of Cutsy's works you have a character like this which is a stand-in for the author himself who who's obviously an extremely intellectual, philosophical, thoughtful person who's thought deeply and engaged in all his, his works as well with his own, his own outlook on life and his place in history and in current politics, which is, which is to be a person who, who wants to have maybe an ideal intellectual and literary space but who was almost forced against his will to be involved in the world with all its injustices and, you know, by an accident of his birth, he is complicit in the crimes of a regime. And I think you could find that in probably everything. And it's even probably linked to his fictional, fictionalized autobiographies where he, he makes himself out to be a much worse type of person than I think he really is. But I think there's always that thread running through, through almost everything. It's unusual to find an author who so consistently is writing himself into an older version of himself. Because I think the impulse among so many novelists is to write about younger people. At least I feel like that's what I see more of. But so if he was writing, you know, Waiting for the Barbarians in 1980, and then Disgrace after that, he's, he's writing the narrator who most sort of resonates with him as this older person, and I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I was reading a review by Gia Tolentino of The Grace, or sort of a revisiting of it in light of the Me Too movement, where she said, you know, the crime of that novel is just that he's getting old. It's not so much, which I take some issue with, but it is fascinating to think that for him, he uses getting old, which is, of course, inevitable, unlike history or anything, you have to get old, and he uses that as sort of a way to weaken himself or to make himself um, somewhat subservient to other characters in the novel, if we do believe that this is himself, a version of himself, you know, in these narrators, which it would be hard, I think, to refute. But that, just as a fellow, like, fiction writer and novelist, it was very fascinating to see him so frequently writing the him as an older person when he must have been, you know, like in his 30s and 40s. Yeah, I think he would have been about 40 when Waiting for the Barbarians was published. So, yeah, the magistrate does come off as an older gentleman, you know, maybe in his 50s, but could be in his 40s. Disgrace, I guess, Cutsy himself would have been his late 50s. 
and it very much I think fits with the professor in that novel who was sort of a an aging relic of an older period. But uh, yeah, late fifties or early sixties, I think, would be the character. So I think he's mostly following, you know, himself in some way. Probably similar age. Maybe it seems a bit older because he's always kind of a bit dry and very intellectual, but not very exciting, you know, not adventurous. Yeah, yeah. I read the magistrate as older I because he's always talking about how decrepit he is. I mean, I felt like he <laughs> must have been in at least his mid-60s, but I could very well be wrong. I, I think, yeah, I mean, there's this, this oldness to him. Life has passed by the characters, at least his, his white male characters, if you look at Disgrace and, and the magistrate. And that is such a beautiful, like the, the crime of existence is getting old. I mean, there is a, like the literal sense, but I, I really feel that like on some deep level, that too, Koji, is the crime like of existence. The fact that we get old, like I mean, there's this old. I don't know. To me, the fact I was just read disgrace. The idea of the fact that time passes, right, and all that implies about anything in this world and holding on to it. I think it's something that's frustrated his writing for a very long time. And so I think situating himself as an older character at like the cusp of that, like essentially looking back at life, right? And realizing there's not much space left before the end is a place where he's comfortable thinking and where he's probably always thought from in some ways, I would argue, from what I've read anyways. See that even in Dusklands. It's, it's not a cynical view, but it's a very like old person, like I've seen it all view. And the repercussions of that, like, what does that mean if you feel that you've seen everything there is to see and there's nothing else in life? There's a certain sadness and frustration. I just love that, like, the time of existence is getting old. And, like, to tie that, not to, like, skip to disgrace, but the first line of that book is, like, I've solved the sex problem. I find that absolutely fascinating thread that's tied to this in some ways. That can be read just as that character obviously has issues with sex and how he approaches it. But it's, for him, for Kochi, I feel it's very much a problem of existence that he is trying to figure his way through. Uh, maybe we can come back to that. I think that is important that she writes from that old perspective, definitely. This kind of wizened, dried-out version of things. I think it fits really well with the themes he often deals with. And it, it reminds me of another thing I've forgotten, but there's a, tech, a literary technique he often uses, which is really striking somehow and just it's not like he's the only one who uses it but he he writes very often in the present tense it just kind of jumps out of you he's telling a story right now like you're watching this happen it's just one of these it feels like a postmodern technique one of many he uses that makes his his writing strange and unique and very interesting to think about so, yeah, he writes from this point of view of older people. I was thinking about a couple more novels also where he even has the female lead character, but they're also very old. You know, they're, they're looking back at their life and seeing how things have changed. There's one called Age of Iron, where there's an, an, uh, actually a dying old South African woman who sees the changes in her country, and uh, one called Elizabeth Costello, which is an, very old and Actually, at the end of the novel, she does die and goes to a Kafka afterlife. But yeah, it's the same thing. There's older people looking back at their life and also sort of the history 
of their lifetime and just seeing how things went, maybe how things went wrong and, you know, what their personal crimes were and sins and uh, reflecting on that. They're always very self-reflective anyway, these characters. Yeah, it's interesting to write in the present tense in these landscapes that feel so old. But it almost creates this fascinating disjunct, and I think it's part of the conversation in, in about history that he's trying to give because he's constantly describing these landscapes that are bleak and they're dry. I think Dia Tolentino, she said that Disgrace had like an acidic haze over it, which I thought was perfect. It's a good picture, this yellow haze. And so taking landscapes that feel this worn out, like there's nothing left in them other than maybe pumpkins that could grow. Um, and then, you know, inserting people in these really immediate sort of present tense states of mind is really fascinating. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I guess that environment is often inspired by South Africa itself and maybe a lot of Africa in general. It's very arid and even desert, or at least it's sort of like a very dry Mediterranean climate. And he really brings that out. I mean, as much as he has philosophical and political ideas running through his works, I mean, they're very in, written in the moment. Like, you visualize where you are and who the characters are. You really see the places. And it's one of the things that makes him a great writer all around. I mean, it, his actual writing style is very, very well done. And, yeah, he uses the present tense, but he's looking back at some older you know, time period. And he, he does so many things in a, in a strange way that it just kind of strikes you. I think that, that's one of the things I found most rewarding with his writing. And the striking thing is, is, is important to me. I mean, I love this idea of, like, I think on one level you could argue, like, the arid, acidic haze is also a product of South Africa, right, being at the end, the feeling at the end. Like, this, everyone knows, it's going, like, in the 70s when he's growing, I mean, an older man in the 80s, everyone knows it's going to collapse, it's like, when? And that feeling. But I also wanted just to connect to the literary aspect, like that present tense. What really blew me away especially about Michael Kay, but then going back to his other works, I started to see it there as well, is that he uses that present tense, but then he'll he'll break it. And this is what you all kind of alluded to. Like he has these moments where it shifts into an imagined future and where he writes things that haven't happened. And it's not a dream. Like he has dreams sometimes that's different, but it's he, he writes a future that could be from the present tense, which is, objectively objectively like impossible given the situation but it has like this vivacity this 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 substance to it and i think like in that clash between the realities of history the present tense and then this imagined space that he runs off to as a literary technique really a great spark for me as a reader and it, it, he does it at the end of each of his books there's moments in his books where i'm like okay it, 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 it can be rough going, but then he moves into that space at the end, and it's, to me, an astonishing move that I've seldom seen elsewhere. Gordimer, I have a quote from her. She reviews Michael Kay, and she has this line, like, she talks about when she read Michael Kay and her experience of it, and it says, but Coetzee's mode from the beginning is seen, soon seen to have arisen solely out of needs of content and is purely and perfectly achieved. As the reader is drawn into the novel, there comes the extraordinarily rare occurrence of one's response to its events opening up along with that of the central character himself. 
This is the reverse of facile identification. The prehensile comprehension stirs take hold where the grasp of familiarity doesn't reach. A fellow inmate of the labor camp says to Michael K., you've been asleep all your life. It's time to wake up for the reader too. And I just wanted to throw that out there because even though Gordimer has a lot of issues with, with Kosi's work, she sees how he pulls you into that space and then it just opens up. And that in itself makes, to, to me, him worth reading. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really interesting quote there from uh, Nadine Gordimer. And that's an interesting comparison because the two writers are both South African and she was the first the first one to win the Nobel Prize, and then he actually won it after her. And they're the only two South African writers to win the Nobel Prize. And actually, they're, I really like Gordimer a lot, but she is a very different writer. You know, if we talk about politics in, uh, in South Africa, of course, with the apartheid regime, she was a vehement opponent, you know, her entire life, and that came out in her works. They were very political and full of harsh criticism of the entire lifestyle and worldview that sustained that oppression. And Kutsi was also an opponent of apartheid and very liberal and a very left type of thinker, but who engaged very sort of obliquely in his work with, with the political situation, using parable and, you know, these timeless settings and more philosophical uh, ideas. So waiting for the barbarians, you know, you could see, you could easily graft that onto the South African uh, colonialist and apartheid regime. And it's quite easy in a superficial way, but he's going a bit deeper. And there's this quote, you know, in this essay I wrote, but I found he he doesn't give many interviews or talk about, about the world or himself so much, but this quote I found jumped out out of me, where he was talking about his method of writing itself and about the novel and the role of the novelist or even the artist. And in times of crises, which I think would be any time, we would definitely say now, but there's never really been good times where there's not some kind of crisis. But the artist or the novelist in this world in crisis has only two options, supplementarity or rivalry. Supplementarity, I think, would be the Gordimer position, where she is documenting the things that are happening in the world in a fictional way. You know, she's writing works about injustice and social issues and oppression, and she's she's going that route. The other is rivalry, which I think is Kutzi's route, where he... He has his, his own personal beliefs, his political opinions, and we could try to understand them. But in his work, he's not trying to just talk about what's happening in the world. He's trying to create a work of art. And in that work, he wants also to touch on higher philosophical ideas. And he wants to engage with his literary antecedents. And he wants to do something different, to create another world in his art, and not just copy the existing world and comment on it. So I think what he, that's what he's doing there, and it was a, a striking quote to me, and I always think about it now when I think about politics and art in general, as two options that are available to, to an artist. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I love what Mike 
is bringing up about these flights of imagination that sort of just come spontaneously almost, or they feel spontaneous out of his novels. And that is so different from something like, say, Berger's Daughter or something that Gordon would write. And I was really struck in, in Disgrace when he talked about the idea of Losung, this, this German idea of sublimation, right? And I think that's what maybe is keeping his work so firmly in the arena of art. He's talking about, he's talking about it in that case in when, when uh, Professor Lurie has to put these dogs to sleep. And uh, this idea of sort of like sublimating them out of existence. But I think that also it's this idea of like a disappearance, right? Not just necessarily a death, it's a disappearance. And I think that he disappears into his art in a way that is just incredibly powerful. And he allows us to kind of sort of disappear into it with him too. Like when he has the medical officer imagine chasing Michael Kay off the ground or Michael Kay with a teaspoon or something like that. And so I just love this idea that I, that I feel as an author, he really disappears into his work and allows it this sort of artistic scope that is really revolutionary feeling when you read it. When you talk about um, Professor Lurie in Disgrace disappearing into his art despite his situation as a, a fired and disgraced university professor and having all his personal issues, his family issues with his daughter. And, but yeah, it's almost absurd because what he does in his free time is he's, he's trying to finish this opera about Lord Byron and one of his affairs, which is the Italian Countess Guicciali. You know, he's just like slowly, maybe one page at a time, trying to write these arias to almost an absurd type of opera. But, you know, if you think about it, in the context of what's going on, and he's violently attacked, and there's a lot of death, and he ends up putting down these dogs as a volunteer in a, an animal shelter. And But yeah, he's, he's still trying to go on with this kind of a quintessential artistic solipsistic, I guess, almost enterprise, writing an opera, you know, at that time period, because also nobody even really watches opera. And I don't think anybody, yeah, and nobody wants yeah, to yeah, watch one. Dogs, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's almost kind of like dark humor, like, who wants to watch an opera about Lord Byron anyway, you know, right now? It's just, it's like of an older time period. I thought it was funny in a way, but also sad, but maybe representative, but also Kutsi, who I think wants to just make his art and he does engage in the world in his way, but he also would just prefer to be left alone and read his books and comment on them and not have to worry about oppression and injustice and all those people suffering around him. So I think it's maybe, it's hard to say, but I feel like he's personally on the fence is maybe I, I don't know the man or understand him psychologically, but I think he he probably feels he is complicit in this somehow, but also he just, he's a well-to-do background and he's he feels like he's been on the right side of history, you know, supporting the right causes maybe, but in the end, maybe he just wants to be left alone and, you know, make his art. In every book, that, that idea kind of comes out. You want to separate from the world. Can I just escape from the world, you know, and get off? There's always some thought in there like that. Well, there is, but I also think, and I think that is a driving thing for him, but he also is hyper aware of how ridiculous that is, given his circumstances and given the realities of history. 
and so he's he has this compulsion to to play a banjo and do his his opera and hang out with the cute dogs but he's also driving it home i mean he couples that with the fact that like the end of disgrace i mean not to spoil it for anyone but i mean that moment when he puts down the dog that has like grown attached to him he has to give that up that's what i mean that's where the the power in his writing from because there's a lot of people in this world who want to run away into their art that want to run away in some aspect but he he does but he's continually bringing it back to history and refusing that but he's not giving up on the possibility of something else being there but history like because because for him history is inevitable and it's this horrible age of iron that is coming no matter whether you like it or not and just to like tie back to that ridiculousness and it's, I, I want to laugh at his writing sometimes. Like, is he making a joke? I don't know for sure. And it's really hard to tell. But he he does at least have a, a very good understanding of his own ridiculousness I, as a person. And if you read, like, I've only read snippets of his personal biography stuff. But like we said at the beginning, he's always hitting himself. And he describes, he's always describing himself as an, an envelope of skin with a furnace inside of it. And so he's this awkward robot person. And he sees himself that way. And when he talks about his sexual relationships, all of it, the women comment on him. Him, he's that disjunction you mentioned earlier, Andrea. He puts himself in that that space, which is very uncomfortable for the reader and him. But I think it does produce something beautiful at times, like him able to being situated there. Yeah, I always wonder, like, am I supposed to be laughing at this? And he's aware of it, but it's also very serious. So it's like Kafka, I guess. But I don't yeah, know. and I think um, I think that is intentional. His writing often seems a bit dry, and it's arid environment, and it's very serious events and themes, and even the characters often. But it's there's a lot of secret humor in there. I feel, which I think he's kind of working on a higher level. You know, he's we know he's very influenced by Dostoevsky, by Kafka, also by Beckett, and some of these types of writers. And but those are also funny writers a lot of the time, which have dark humor, and I think a lot of it is sort of, an, like you said, Mike, an absurdity of the situation, but also making fun of yourself and the ridiculousness of almost the whole human condition. There's a lot in there. It is funny, though. He, he does, though, reach a higher level, I think, like you said, at the end of a lot of the works. It moves along, and it's, you want to see what happens, and it's quite good, but then he reaches another gear like at the end, and something kind of hits you. There's, there's an emotional climax where something happens and you're touched and moved. And he, he does this quite often. Yeah, it's just grace. You kind of feel that moment with the character, Professor Lurie, putting down the dog. He's become a different person, and I guess a better person. As a reader, you maybe feel that too. It's kind of the thing you want to find when you read books a lot of the time. I find I do. Maybe sometimes you want to read for escape or something perhaps. But I mean, I want to be moved sometimes. I want to see through other people's eyes or somehow become a better person or maybe feel like I do anyway, just just by reading. I think that happens with a lot of his novels. It, It kind of reaches you, makes you think about yourself and feel even feel better at the end even if it's sad. Yeah, he seems to have a preoccupation with these characters who are kind of, they're grappling with sort of this pity and impotence and sort of an emotional struggle to want to 
people to do something, to give something, but they just can't. They're blocked at every turn. The medical officer thinks about Michael Kay, and he's saying, you know, what what do you do with someone who doesn't want anything from you? You're trying and trying and trying to give, and, and they don't need anything from you. They don't want anything from you. And that feels really timely politically, and and it's also just really moving. With Professor Lurie and Disgrace, you know, he, he wants to do something for his daughter, Lucy, but she kind of told him, there's nothing that you can do. Really, all he can offer is this weird opera, banjo opera, and then he can offer death to this dog. His daughter doesn't really want him to live in the house. He can't do anything to fix her situation. And she seems just incredibly stubborn to him. And you know, she tell, and, she, and he keeps getting startled by this whole idea like that he wasn't there. And he's like, I was there. I was set on fire. Like, I was set on fire and hit on the head and practically lost sight in my eye for a while and everything. But he keeps being told by Bev Shaw and by Lucy and by everyone, well, you weren't there. And I think that is a really fascinating way to express complicity and passivity, just historically and interpersonally, that we're kind of at cultural moments where we want to do better, but we also understand that we weren't there. And I think he articulates that in his novels in a way that it is incredibly profound across all the books that we read together. And for me, that was one of the most moving parts of these three main novels that we read. I know, I know what you mean. In that moment in his grace, you know, there's obviously this scene, it's the most violent scene where there's you know, there's an assault at his daughter's house, and he is uh, attacked, and he's set on fire and locked in a bathroom, and there's three black men. We assume there's a rape of his daughter, but later, I think we have to think about it again, because there's some idea that he, he thinks something happened, and maybe we're led to believe something else happened. The women keep emphasizing, you weren't there, David. So you don't know, and they're very angry at him just for trying to give comfort or support or um, help file the police report or something else, and they're all very resistant to him. And it feels like the role of the white male, the, the controlling authority in the society, is he's setting that aside. He gives space to the, the less powerful characters willingly. And I think he does this in a lot of his books, actually. So he almost, he wants to represent the, the other side of the oppressed individuals, which could be women in a male-dominated, you know, patriarchal society, or indigenous or other oppressed people, like in South Africa, the entire black population. I think we find this a lot. Even in, there's one novel called Foe, he wrote, which is about Daniel Defoe and Robinson Crusoe, and it's very postmodern. There's a, a fictional woman, Susan Barton, I believe, who supposedly met Robinson Crusoe, and they came back to England together with Friday. Friday was changed into a black African man, but he literally couldn't speak because his tongue had been cut out. We didn't know Robinson Crusoe, you know, just said this happened, but we're led to believe maybe Robinson Crusoe did it himself. The whole one of the main themes of the novel, I think, is it kind of represents the postmodern academic and also literary movements of you know, feminism. This woman's story was co-opted by a real author, a real historical author, and a fictional author in the book, which is Daniel Defoe, to write her out of the history. And Friday couldn't even speak 
and give his own history. We, we're just we're supposed to see through his eyes, though, like he's watching and judging us for our our crimes. You find that theme, I think, in every work. You know, Michael Kay. It's obviously, I think, the whole novel. You could talk about that post-colonial racial side. It's one of the main themes, but also disgrace. It feels like it's something he feels either personally guilty about or it needs to be mentioned and, and dissected further, even from his point of view as a you know a white male, if that makes sense. Definitely does. Yeah, I thought about that a lot when I was reading in terms of, and especially with like disgrace, and as he's a professor, master of language, right, an English professor of communication, and and when everyone's saying, like, you don't know, you don't know, and his, and this goes back to the medical officer, Michael Kay, as well, they want to put words on it, right? They want to, but by putting their words on it, they're controlling it, right? Making it their story. And so I think that's almost, in a weird way, his resistance to, like, the traditional realist novel, where he would become a character and try to give them a voice that's, like, traditionally would be empowering, we think. I think Quixie is like he's aware like how that would be actually a lie and false and da- incredibly dangerous and part of the problem, and so he's really good about emphasizing the silence and what we can't give words to, and how by giving it words we're portraying not just what we're trying to help out, but ourselves in some fundamental way. And there's that irony and disgrace, of course, because he's the professor of language, the genius, the romantic, he loves us, he can talk all day long, but there are no words in the language that exist. I think there's a line to that effect at some point. The language that exists now, there are no words for it, and it's incredibly frustrating, and so all you have are these actions. It also comes up in Waiting, the Barbarian, Waiting for the Barbarians, again, like, that you can't articulate it, and you can only articulate it through actions, and the failure of language and uh, the way that language can be deceptive and also complicit. Like, I mean, and that, that might help explain his move towards this kind of postmodern maneuvers. And that story of Bo, example, makes sense that he would go there. Yeah, and it makes it hard questions about, like, I mean, writing generally, he's asking. Like, how do you write? And using the realist novel, which is an invention of the 19th century, the era of British colonialism and French colonialism. Like, I mean, I, I think he's connecting all these things in his head and, and wrestling with that. And that my, one of my favorite, probably my favorite moment, I mean, up there and, and one of those moments where he like just surprises you, like you said, David, the medical officer is chasing Michael Kay, right? And then it's this explanation after he's like, this is who you are. I understand you. I want to help you. And he just keeps on running away. You see this obsession very early on in his work. You see it in Dustland. It runs through it all. I don't know. I appreciated how he plays with that. And that appeals to me a lot because I think that's a, you get into trouble when you try to use language, your own language, to describe someone else's experiences sometimes. I think that's uncomfortable for writers to think about. He uses silence as, um, as, as kind of, it's a marker that something's gone wrong, right? Because any character after a trauma is, becomes silent for a while, even minor characters. In Barbarians, little girl who's playing and she's raped down by the river, and they say, "Well, the barbarians did it." Uh, two major characters, like Michael Kay or the barbarian woman, silence is a sign first that something has gone really wrong, but it's also kind of like the last vestige of sort of autonomy for his characters, which is really a beautiful thing. And I mean, you you know, you have the magistrate constantly asking his barbarian 
partner, girlfriend, you know, what did they do? Tell me exactly what they did to you. How did they hurt you? And she, she won't. And it's the same with Michael K. And it's the same with uh, Lucy. And so that's just fascinating that he, I don't know if it's like you had said earlier, Mike, that he is recognizing his limitations there, that maybe these are things that he can't write or shouldn't, or, and I think there's a higher layer and probably lots of other layers too, but that, yeah, he's, he's allowing his characters like this, this privacy that feels really beautiful individually and kind of like taken across the novel. That's sort of the last thing that, that they have. It feels very like invitation to a beheading or very Kafka in that way of being like unto yourself under these tremendous pressures. Yeah, no, totally. It's like silence is being used as uh, an explicit tool by the person who, we, even if they spoke, we couldn't understand them anyway because we're in a totally different world. Also, in Age of Iron, there's a character who's, who's a black homeless man who, who just comes to live in the house of this old white lady, and she sort of resists it, but then accepts him, and they become friends, and he basically never speaks. And she just talks to him all day long about her family and problems, and he just listens, and he helps her. And, and in the end, he, he actually helps her kill herself when she's reached the end, and, but he, he almost never speaks. And it was also very well done. You know, He builds up to these emotional situations, but he can do it with characters not even having to speak. And one more point, I think, is even with animals. There's often, you know, the human and animal relationship is somehow touched upon in a lot of his works. And animals, of course, can't speak at all and can't communicate with humans in any way. And he is, I think, very sympathetic to the plight of animals. Sometimes that's just done through by, by way of dogs, you know, and, and disgrace there's a lot of dogs. And, but also in Elizabeth Costello, it's uh, in a short novella version of that, which is just called The Lives of Animals. You know, he, he's talking about how animals themselves can't speak for, animals can't speak for themselves, and they're almost the quintessential example of oppressed beings in, in a certain configuration that humans produce great crimes against them. I think it's kind of what he's trying to say. He puts these arguments into that character in Elizabeth Costello, and he does it in a very controversial way by comparing factory farming, mass slaughter with the Holocaust by this character at a conference. And it's really interesting, and it makes you think. And also, it's an actual speech he gave that he wrote into the novel. There's something else there, too, I think, with the animal issue. Yeah, I like how you're it is the same thing, like pushed out into a new direction, right? The same movement confronting that silence and the difficulty of, because to him, I feel there's this, he's very aware of a crime being committed, right? These crimes that are happening, these horrible injustices that have been perpetrated by the state. And then you can apply that to also animals and how humans treat like the factory farming, all the, the, along those lines. And I guess what, is interesting about what he's doing, and this gets back to our conversation about in terms of setting up a rival system. He's very worried, I feel, that by describing injustice, 
he ends up replicating and letting the people who commit the injustice, letting them win in some way. And there's this quote I found from him early on in his career where he says, yet there is something tawdry about following the state in this way, making its vile mysteries the occasion of fantasy. And I think he's thinking about writers who are like, we need to record and write stories about all the horrible things the state is doing right now, right? All the torture and things like along those lines. And he says, for the writer, the deeper problem is not to allow himself to be impaled on the dilemma proposed by the state, namely either to ignore its obscenities or else to produce representations of them. And so the implication being like by re representing them, we are playing their game. By ignoring them, we're also playing their game, right? The true challenge is how not to play the game by the rules of the state, how to establish one's own authority, how to imagine torture and death on one's own terms. And I think that's, to me, why he's bringing up the silence in every one of his books, all the way through his discussion of animals. He's trying to find a way to not play by the rules of the state, the system, and establish his own authority outside of just representing it. And silent characters resist that. They allow the, the, the protagonist to realize that in some way. I don't know if that makes sense. It's kind of abstract, but it's something that is appealing to me. And it's interesting how he moves from that in disgrace. Like, I don't know. Only he could get away with this. <laughs> He's talking about the historical fact, and he moves to the conversation about animals, right? And which is really extreme movement to think about in some respects, but also it makes sense considering his lifelong obsession. Yeah, no, I think you said that really well, Mike. It's um, something I was trying to express. But yeah, that's exactly, I think, Waiting for the Barbarians, there's a, a scene with torture where the the soldiers under the, the evil, you know, colonel who comes in to to defeat the, the barbarians, he just captures a lot of them and tortures them. And later, the magistrate himself is arrested for treason and he is subjected to the torture. And it's, uh, it's difficult to portray something like that in written word, right? And I, I've actually written an article about torture itself, and that's with regard to the, you know, the Iraq war and the, what was done by Americans even. And it's something I think we should think about. Kutzi, I think, has thought deeply about this, whereas uh, it's... it's Something, how can you express in words something so grotesque without somehow strengthening it? You know, you want to subvert it, but how can you represent that on a page through art? And so I think the quote he said is something about, you refuse to play by the rules of the state. And I think it also fits into his quote about uh, rivalry history or politics, where you want to, to do these things in your own way. So growing up in South Africa, you know, he saw plenty of uh, dissidents and resistors who were killed and tortured and without trials. And I think he thought very carefully about how he wanted to do this work. And so the magistrate was tortured, but it was done in, in a very prophetic way. You know, and the way it was described was um, anything sensational, you know, he's really trying to thread that fine needle you're talking about between describing violence and and supporting the violence through his art somehow. It's a difficult thing to do, and I think he's done it very well.
thinking about kind of random. We have to wrap up soon, I know, next uh, 10 minutes or so, but he's a strange guy. I just think it's funny. I, I was reading a story about him when he was talking about as a young man in South Africa, I guess in his early 20s, they, they used black labor for everything, essentially the Africans, right? And they could they subsisted off of that. And he hated the system so much, but he's with his family at their farm, right? And so he decides to, he's going to fix his car himself. He's going to take care of his car because it would be wrong to uh, have a black South African do that. And so he proceeds to do that and they go on a trip and he tells a story. He goes on a trip with his cousin and the car immediately breaks down and they're stranded for like a couple of days in the middle of the veld. And I, I find that funny image to me. Like he's, he's constantly, he's aware of his, of the problem and he wants to handle it to try to fi- fix it. As a young man, there's this kind of need to try to make it right. But then seeing how it breaks down, I think that is essential to kind of the his worldview of not just personal interactions, but historical interactions. And thinking about Gordimer and her critique of Michael Kay was essentially at the end is that he does not support apartheid, but he also doesn't really support the revolution. He doesn't see it getting better in Tutsi's imagination. That was her argument anyway, and which is fair. And I think if we could maybe, as we like close up here, we're, we're at a really important moment in U.S. history in terms of race relations and racial politics. And there seems to be movement and excitement on the ground. Uh, did, you have, did you have any connections with that when you all were reading between what's going on right now and reading about essentially a shifting racial dynamic in South Africa? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say exactly because America has been going through bad racial relations its entire existence before it was even a country. But in a way, we've never really dealt with it, whereas South Africa was a more recent country, you know, invention of a political entity um, as a colonial state and then after world war ii more of an independent apartheid state but in a way they have dealt with this problem already not that anything is so great there but they've they've gone through their de-apartheid movement tutsi gordimer many other authors obviously from south africa they've tried to do you know their artistic works to to deal with this in different ways you know writing about the situation from different points of view. I think Tutsi has uh, done very well to try and thread that needle of not conspiring or being complicit with the oppressors, trying to say in the best way he can, but also maybe not being so hopeful about what might come after anyway. In America right now, I'm sure you know, plenty of people are unhappy about things. Just to say in the, the smallest way possible, but from the point of view of literature and art, what's going to come from that? If we just keep focused on this little aspect, of, you know, what are there going to be great artists and writers who who come out of this type of movement, like we've seen in the past? Are we going to have people who uh, who talk about some of the American crimes of history? and also current politics in, in a convincing way, Nobel Prize winners. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, it's fascinating to contrast kind of American denial with 
say like the huge truth and Recon- <laughs> truth and reconciliation committee movement that South Africa saw. I mean, I think they had something like twenty thousand plus victim testimonies, reparations paid out. I mean, it, and it, what I think is interesting there, in contrast with sort of our denial, is that in Kotsi he seems to see the biggest failure, like the, the biggest true crime, is like a failure of the imagination. And so I think that's where he gets really angry and really frustrated, both in like the lives of animals and in all of his books. That if you can imagine yourself into you know another human, you can imagine yourself into someone very different than you. And that I think is, he sees as kind of not just the artist's duty, but I think he's trying that particularly that that it's everyone's duty, you know, to try and imagine yourself into other people's lives and situations. And so. That, to me, is very hopeful in light of what's happening in the United States right now. I hope it continues to happen, and I just think that that we can sort of see the worst crime as being to not try to imagine, then we can avoid committing some more of these terrible historical crimes. I think that's well said. I think thank you, both of you, for coming in today and talking about this for Rapture and Cree. And if you haven't checked out any of Coetzee's work, you should. His newest novel is The Death of Jesus. Take some time to go out there and pick up his South African novels because, as Andrea was pointing out and David did, they're pertinent and relevant for our current moment, but many historical moments will continue to be. Mm-hmm.